having our feelings is the key. Not trying to be happy all the time, not being what Mary Ainsworth called long-suffering mothers <laughs> who are trying <laughs> to do the right thing. Yes, we want to be our best selves for our children, but our best selves are selves who completely metabolize. Yeah, they're messy. Our best self is messy. Well, it's messy and it's really dealing with the stress, not yeah. just knowing we're messy, but like mm -hmm. getting in there and feeling all the feelings and learning to negotiate with ourselves and learning to navigate the darkness and the shadows. And if we keep the shadows shadowy, that is what we're going to transmit to our children. So if we have a lot of energy for parenting, like so many in the West do, I like to recommend that people put that energy toward unpacking their own feelings and thoughts and ideas around who they think they are, because that will actually really serve your child more than signing them up for the very best X, Y, or Z for their whole life. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hi, y'all. This is Ann. You know, we've learned no better way to educate than to tell a good story. And that's just what Bethany Saltman, our guest, has done with her new book, Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. So her book was just released this year, and it's really exceptional. The book is part gripping personal and parental memoir, and part old school research into the makings of attachment theory. You know, you've heard a lot about John Bowlby, and he historically gets most of the credit. However, his colleague, Mary Ainsworth, was the one who really broke open the theory by doing the cutting-edge research of mothers and infants that came to be known as the original strange situation. And you've probably heard us speak about it on the podcast multiple times. So through intriguing storytelling, Bethany brings to life both this history, but also really what attachment really means. And you'll discover today it's not always what you think. Bethany Saltman is a practice Zen student and a big promoter of the fine art of paying attention. So she's also a book coach, a communications director, and a mindfulness mentor. She helps writers and entrepreneurs at all stages of the creative process envision and execute their big projects. So if you have a deep interest in attachment and creating secure relationships in your own world, this episode is really for you. Also, if this subject is really exciting to you and you want to be part of taking a deeper dive with Sue and I and consider supporting our show, think about becoming a Patreon member if you can. A little bit of support goes a long way and you get so much for it. If you're interested, even as little as $5 a month, you go to patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored. All right, without further ado, let's jump into the discussion between Sue and Bethany. So we are so excited to have you, Bethany. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Thanks for having me. Would you agree or disagree with this? Mary Ainsworth is undersold as an absolute, poorly recognized, unsung hero. Oh my gosh, agree. <laughs> so I imagine that we're going to get way more into that, but I really, really love 
recognizing her work and getting that out there to our listeners, many of which are very familiar with attachment. But I think that you're going to be able to teach us all cool stuff that we didn't even know about the original research. Absolutely. I'd love to. (laughs) So how about you orient everybody to kind of give them a frame of who you are and how we got to where we are right now talking to one another, you know? Sure. So I am a writer, a mother. I am not a therapist. I am not a clinician in any way, nor am I a so-called expert in attachment. I have a bachelor's in literature and an MFA in poetry. I'm a longtime Zen student. And I became interested in attachment when my daughter Azalea was born 14 years ago. She was born perfectly healthy and I loved her dearly. You know, I thought she was the greatest thing that had ever been born. I thought she was beautiful. And and I had all of that affection that we so often have for our children. But I also felt sort of shocked and dismayed that I also still felt like myself. In other words, I still felt angry sometimes, edgy, frustrated, impatient, bored. And that really scared me. And I looked back at my life and saw so many problems with relationships. And I thought, oh, I guess I'm broken. It all, quote, made sense. There's nothing like motherhood that can make us aware of our train wreck selves, huh? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I thought, wow, you know, I love this girl so much. I was terrified that I wasn't going to be able to love her. I was writing a a column at the time about being a Buddhist mother for a local magazine. Every month I had an opportunity to reflect on this experience I was having, thinking, you know, not only am I a mother, but I'm a Zen person. I'm a Zen student. I should be better. I should not lose my temper. I should not be impatient. I should be able to do this. And so because I was given an opportunity to write about it and explore this topic, I started to learn about things like attachment. I had learned about attachment through the Dr. Sears attachment parenting, Mm -hmm. so-called attachment Mm -hmm. parenting, I like to say, which should also be called clinging parenting. It is not (sighs) attachment. It is not secure attachment parenting. Yeah, we've had to do a couple of episodes actually kind of discerning that attachment parenting from infant attachment, from adult attachment, breaking it all apart. So your journey is very common. I think that that's the first thing that you go to. Yes. And he really has hijacked the term attachment to confuse and shame a lot of people. So I'd love to talk about that another time. But so I first learned about attachment through him. And then I started to see mentions of this other kind of attachment that became interesting to me. And then I learned about Mary Ainsworth and the strange situation. And just the words piqued my interest. I thought, what is this? And I quickly learned that this strange situation is a 20-minute laboratory procedure that occurs between a caregiver and a baby that a trained observer can use to discern the type of attachment security, the pattern of attachment that that dyad exhibits. And I thought, now that is something I want to know about. There's something there. So if we slow down for a second, you got all the way to Mary Ainsworth through like a desire to be a better mother? Was it fear that was driving you? It was through curiosity and fear and excitement, all kind of wrapped up. It began with fear, terror, really, Mm -hmm. that I was going to destroy this thing, this person that I loved more than anything, because Mm -hmm. I thought I didn't know how to love her. 
And then my curiosity really kicked in, my intellectual passion, my need to know kicked in. And I started to look around more and more and see Mary Ainsworth as somebody that was really worthy of my attention. And so I started to really dig in and want to know more about her. Because the other thing that happens for parents out there, when we begin to get introduced to the literature or to neuroscience and the effect of trauma or early life stressors on the brain, it's terrifying. And you mentioned shame earlier. We orient around the show a lot to both give you the information, but also keep you hopeful. And I think your message really kind of resonates with that too. That's why I was wondering about the fear. It's like really frightening to look at yourself and to look into this and to really even examine like, oh my gosh, am I a good parent or not? Yeah. And the first time I heard about the AAI, the adult attachment interview, before I really started studying it, but some friends of mine told me about it and I thought, ooh, I don't think I really want to know any more about that. I don't really want to know any more about how this darkness inside of me is being passed down to this child that I love more than anything. It was just too heavy. It just felt like too much best left unknown. Totally, totally get that. And the thing is, we know our own thoughts and feelings. And when, if we don't have context, which is, again, what some of what you're going to be talking about, about what's normal and what's not normal. But if we don't have context, it's really super scary, the shadow self, the dark stuff. Yeah, it's very scary, particularly in the context of love. Yeah, and you just begin to learn like, oh, what you do now is going to impact them forever. It's like, ah. So you, you got in, you found the strange situation. Well, it was impossible for me to understand. I watched it again and again and again on video, and I just could not track the action. I couldn't figure out what was going on. I was so activated by these comings and goings and this crying baby, and I didn't understand what was happening. And I read about it many times, you know, eight episodes, this is what happens. It's a pretty simple procedure, but I couldn't follow it. It was like calculus. I was like, this is like way over my head. Like you couldn't see the things that they were seeing. You, you weren't able to identify them. No. I couldn't even read it, you know, and, and now I understand. And Howard Steele said this to me at one point when I was deeper into the research. He said, you know, this book is going to be really hard for you to write. And I thought, well, why so? And he said, because when our attachment systems are activated, it's difficult to be creative. It's difficult to learn, which is, of course, the very premise of the strange situation. That's what you're looking at in the strange situation. So basically, I was a very activated baby in a strange situation, and I didn't know which way to turn. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I calmed down enough through the secure base of Mary Ainsworth, of the research itself, to be able to settle down, see what's in front of me, learn the research, and then creatively begin to understand it and, and apply it to myself and to what I you know, have seen around me. So when I got really serious about this, I started telling people that I was writing a book, even though I was really just beginning to write a book proposal. But I wrote to Howard Steele and I said, hi, I'm Bethany Saltman and I'm writing a book about the strange situation because I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I'd love to see one in your lab. And he said, well, I'm doing one tomorrow if you'd like to come. And I was like, wow, okay. So I got on the train to the city and I saw my first strange situation, which was incredible. It was a disorganized baby. 
And I noticed how I didn't understand at all. So we went and we saw the baby and the mother. It was at the New School for Social Research in New York City. And Howard Steele is the director, I believe. And so it's a lab. The strange situations happen in these little rooms with a mirror, you know, a one-way mirror, I guess. You can see them, but they can't see you. Exactly. I was in the the little observing room with Howard Steele and the grad students who were doing this research. And this study, like most attachment studies using the strange situation, was looking at how to help parents become more securely attached with their children. So it was, you know, helping to expand their reflective functioning and help them become just more mind-minded. And the strange situation was used as a baseline. So, you know, they wanted to see, okay, what kind of a parent-child relationship are we looking at? And then we're going to do some kind of intervention, and then we're going to test them again in the strange situation. So the parent with the child, how aware are they of the crowd of people in the <laughs> behind the mirror? I don't think they're very aware. And my impression is always that they don't really care either, <laughs> you know, which is interesting. They're just kind of in there to do their thing, and it doesn't seem to be much of an issue. I could be wrong about that, but what you see is the first image is of a room with some toys and two chairs, and then the child and the mother come in, and this baby was really active and really cute and came in, and then the mother is instructed to sit down and read some magazines and be informal. And this is a 12-month-old, is that right? Yes, So he came in, he was very active, and she sat down and started reading the magazine. So that's episode one. The stranger then comes in for episode two and introduces herself to the mother and chats a little informally. And that's to see how the baby is responding to the stranger. Mm -hmm, The novelty, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, episode one is to see what kind of temperament the child has. How do they relate to the toys? What kind of energy do they have? Because what you're looking for is a kind of ebb and flow and an ability to use the parent as a secure base in times of stress. So you want to see what kind of a person are we dealing with here? And so then the addition of the stranger adds a little stress to the system. Exactly. But the mother's still there. So, you know, most babies sort of check out the stranger and might move a little bit more toward the parent, maybe not. So then the the mother leaves and the child is, you know, we notice what kind of a reaction does the child have. All kinds of reactions are considered totally normal at this stage, totally typical, depends on the temperament. So then the stranger leaves and the child is alone. Then we see what happens when this child is left alone. And, you know, study after study has shown even with the most, you know, avoidant kind of low affect child, someone who doesn't appear upset, any child at that age left alone is going to be under stress, under duress. And so we can assume that, but we're going to understand, you know, what does this child do in times of stress? Do they run? Do they scream? Do they get quiet? Do they go inside? What is happening? And at that point, then the stranger returns and we see, does the stranger help the child get back to where they were in episode one, homeostasis? Does the stranger work as a secure base? And from an attachment point of view, you don't really want the stranger to work. You want the mom, the caregiver to be the big guns to really do the trick. And so we see that 
after a few minutes pass and then the parent returns and that's the reunion that we're really looking for. We're really looking for if the parent can bring the child back to stability. And you look really, really closely at all the different kinds of proximity seeking and all the back and forth between the parent and the child. And then the stranger leaves. I think I skipped an episode or two, but the essential point is about this return, uh, the reunion. You want to look at the reunion and see not so much what happens when the child is left alone, but what happens when the parent returns and the child uses the mother or the, the parent in some capacity as a secure base. And that's when we see if the relationship, quote, is working, as Dr. Alan Sroof said during when I did the training with him in Minnesota. Right. So working. And so what that might look like, from my understanding, is baby's upset, probably because mom is gone. But upon her return, what you're wanting to see is that they seek the mother, they allow themselves to be soothed. So they're mad, they're upset, they can express themselves, they go they get recharged relatively quickly and then are ready to show them all the cool toys. Yep, exactly. So that's the optimal with a sort of typical temperament. When I was there, this baby, when the mother returned, behaved in kind of awkward ways. He didn't really go to her and he didn't seem very soothed by her. And I remember the mother coming in and yawning, which I think is really interesting. And he did seem happy to see her. So I thought, oh, that's good. But he didn't go to her. And I remember Dr. Steele saying in the moment, curious, he doesn't go to his mother. Because he was upset when she was gone. So you have to ask, why is this not happening? So that was the first strange situation that I saw. And then I went to Dr. Steele's office afterwards. And we talked a little bit about it. And he told me that he thought that that child did show some signs of disorganization which I thought, oh God, that's so sad. Because I knew enough at that point to know that that indicates that there's probably something really uncomfortable in that attachment relationship, yeah. And of course I worried about the mom. And I thought, oh no, oh no, what is she going through? What is she in for, Mm -hmm. you know, what's gonna Mm -hmm. happen? And thank goodness she's in this study. So I was just going to say, but what's so great about this is identifying these babies. That is such a great place to pour intervention in because this is fortunately not necessarily permanent, although these can be very stable measures, but they're not permanent. So I'm, I'm actually imagining a mom out there like wondering about their own toddler. Totally. And you know, that's the thing about this. It's like, first of all, this is not about destiny. It's somewhere between a snapshot moment in time (laughs) and something that has gathered momentum. There is a snapshot moment in time element to it, but the tendency is that the snapshot comes from the first year of life. Mary Ainsworth came up with the strange situation after studying mothers and babies, first in Uganda and then in Baltimore. And she wanted to develop an instrument where she could watch the secure base function. And so she wanted these babies to have a little bit of stress. So it came out of her wisdom of understanding how the secure base works. So it really is a trustworthy instrument. But first of all, if your baby has some signs of disorganization, it doesn't mean that that child is screwed for life or that you're a terrible person. It means that there's something that might not be functioning optimally. And the great news is that there is help. And so, you know, to try to de-shame the whole 
experience. And I know that that's really easier said than done. It is. And so one of the things is if you're listening to this and you're worried already, you're in a position of you're interested in psychology and mindfulness, you're interested in parenting, you're interested in looking at yourself as a parent for you to even probably be tuned in with us right now. So those are all actually some of the markers and some of the things that are very important. It's not what happened to us. It's what we've done with it. Exactly. And just by being interested and curious in what's going on, that in and of itself is a huge sign that everybody's probably fine. And if it's not, quote, perfect or optimal or secure or however we want to understand that, we can all become more secure in ourselves, which will help our children. She's going to share later. She actually went and did an AAI on herself. I don't want you to say what the results are yet. And her mother and the strange situation. You were willing to put yourself under the microscope and really look at how you look. And you had some ideas of what that was. So hang in with us and we're going to get to that part of the story. But I wanted to do a little teaser there because it's a little bit of a twist. It is a little bit of a twist. (laughs) So you said that you actually got to see Mary Ainsworth's notes from Uganda. Yeah, I became more and more interested in this whole line of research and in her life and in her as a person and in the strange situation as a thing. First, I believe I went to the archive at the Museum for the History of Psychology in Akron, Ohio, which houses her letters. You know, and I don't know that we've put her in the context that she was working with John Bowlby. They were teamed up. And it's that you, I think the why we skipped over that a little bit is we hear a lot about John Bowlby and Bowlby related to attachment, but he was actually working in concert with and very closely with Mary Ainsworth. And so right now we're focusing on that part of the dyad. So please go ahead. But I yeah, just... well, and, and to just add a little bit, she's often referred to as his student, which she was not. They were colleagues in London He started coming up with this whole concept of attachment. She didn't buy it. She thought he was wrong. She told him so. She ended up going to Uganda because her husband got a position there. And she thought, well, maybe I should do a little research into this attachment business and see if John is on to anything. And she got this whole, you know, amazing study going in Uganda without even speaking the language and immediately discovered, oh my God, he's right. Attachment is real. It exists. Relationships matter. And she said she had a sudden and total change in perspective. And she told him about it immediately. And then they were working in tandem from there. So she was not his student. (laughs) That's so good. And there's great stories even about that, about naming them A, B, C, labeling the, the stacks, the buckets. There wasn't the labeling at that point of what was secure or not. Whether or not it was real, if this was a thing. If there was even categories, right? If this was well, a the reliable. Attachment was was right. an actual experience in the human experience. That wasn't even considered true because at, at that point, people believed that children loved their mothers because they fed them. And that was it. And you would love whoever fed you. And you wouldn't care if the source of food went away, you'd get another one. Which was so important about like the Harlow Monkey Studies Also, there were a group of babies that actually looked really good, the good babies. Those were the avoidant babies. We since learned, yeah. We've since learned, that's right. I had heard a story, I think uh, Patricia Crittenden had shared that in speaking with Mary Ainsworth, that it was John Bowlby who got her to come off of the, like labeling them anything 
other than the A and the B and the C, like trying to maintain the neutrality of what are we seeing? Because initially it really did look like that they were the good babies. If it was like called that, like secure or whatever, then you know what I mean? It would affect things. So to keep a really strong research stance, that was why they were A and B and C, you know, basically using just the letters. Lo and behold, it did turn out that those good babies had actually downregulated. So they looked good. Like you said earlier, if you weren't quite sure what you were looking for. Right. Well, I'm not exactly sure what you mean there, because my understanding is that Bowlby didn't believe in the avoidant category at all. He didn't believe that a baby by one could be angry, because that is, in fact, what the avoidant baby is doing. The avoidant baby is saying, screw you. I know you're not going to be effective or consistent. And so when you come to me, I'm going to ignore you. I'm not going to fall for it. I'm not going to fall for it. And Bowlby did not believe that that was possible of a one-year-old. And Mary didn't either at first. This was the thing that, quote, blew her mind the most. She could not believe the avoidant response when she Mm -hmm. saw it in the strange situation. These are like these things that get handed down. So I really love that like you've looked at her notes. You're going to be the Mary Ainsworth expert. So I'm, I'm all ears. I'm just sort of measuring up stories here. So then what happens? So, so where was I? Where well, we were we? talking about the, um, she did begin to see the different uh, ca- categories begin to, you know, be predictable and yes, probably still, you know, weren't quite sure what was happening. Um, but Uh, And I don't think we've mentioned also the group of kids that would be anxious, preoccupied. Correct me, but upon the reunion, they do go to the mom, but they're much harder to soothe. The resistant babies. When babies can go also, but it's just in a a different kind of way. It's really a matter of degree. So, you know, we're really looking at that optimal experience of can you be soothed and return to playing? And the avoidant babies might not rise and fall as much in general. And their play is subdued. They don't have what Mary Mann calls that attentional flexibility. You know, if you look at it from a human point of view, we want a lot of emotion. We want someone to be able to be upset, huge tears, rage, and then return to, oh, this isn't so bad. You know, let me check out these toys. Like, that's a good thing. And the avoidant babies, why they often get sort of misnamed as the good babies is because they seem so independent and Americans particularly love that. But again, from a kind of human emotion point of view, that's what's called restricted affect. By the time a baby is one, they can learn it's not really safe to have all those feelings because you're not going to be met or what Alan Strufen and others have called feel felt. That's the set goal of the attachment system is to be in safe proximity so you don't get eaten by that saber-toothed tiger, but also so that you can feel felt. We need to feel felt. And if as a baby your large feelings are not met and you don't feel felt, you're going to figure that out real fast and you're not going to bother presenting your feelings. Presenting them or even necessarily feeling them. That's what happens over the lifespan. So, yeah, so the resistant babies look an awful lot sometimes like the so-called secure babies, but they go in for proximity, they go in for the uppy, but they don't quite make it and they don't get the comforting that the secure babies do and they never quite settle. 
and that's something that I feel like I see a lot of avoidance in adults also, but I think I see more of that. And as an adult, we call it preoccupied. And we tend to see more, I tend to see more of that, you know, that like coming and going, trying to get your bread buttered and, and someone's trying to help you, but it just never quite feels right. And we all know babies like that and we know people like that. And it's amazing to see how Mary Ainsworth and the people that worked with her were able to understand these basic premises of the human mind. Totally. And that particular one that you're describing where there's kind of the upregulation, we describe it on the show often in colors on the spectrum so that avoidance, you know, more cooled off, blue, you know, downregulated. And again, it depends on the research you're looking at, but calling the resistant babies slash adults <laughs> that, you know, that grow up to be adults would tend to fall on the red side, which is a little more activation, a little more heat. And goal being to integrate, I mean, really overly simplistic, you know, like thinking and feeling and get that put together. So on the resistant babies, going back to this train situation, how did Ainsworth describe them? So that people know that we're talking about the red side of the spectrum a little bit. Those babies were agitated and they had a hard time being relaxed and focused and playing. They were just more agitated. And I think it's really important though, you know, because this is such a shame-filled culture and this attachment work, we receive it with such shame as we talked about before. It's really important to recognize that we all have aspects of all of this in us. People ask me all the time how they can figure out what kind of baby they have or what kind of adult they have. You know, it's not a parlor game, although I hoped it was when I first started doing this research. I kind of wanted it to be. And while I did do the research on myself, or I was able to do that with Howard Steele, you don't really need to know what kind of attachment pattern you have because the antidote is always the same. It's to become more present, more aware, develop more mind-mindedness, and to learn to become more comfortable with our emotions. Wherever we are on the spectrum or wherever we think our children may lie, instead of worrying about that and wanting to nail it, we can all try to be more aware and to notice what we don't notice and to try to open up the container for ourselves. Sometimes people find this really helpful. Like Part of what the AAI measures, again, it's not your content of what happened to you, but it's how you have made sense of it and how you speak of it. Yes. I like what you're saying of like, it kind of doesn't matter where you start. Like interpersonally, if you are our goal, our North Star that we're kind of paddling, dog paddling towards as best we can, is the capacity to be able to hold on to ourselves and know what we're feeling, but also at the same time, hang on to our speaker or our listener, the person across, and be able to continue to kind of stay connected and read them as well so that we don't jump into their world and lose ourselves or we aren't so insulated that I might be giving you a weather report, but I'm not aware of my influence on you. Yeah. How do we share space? How do we share so that there's something in the middle? So if you know nothing else about this, I really like you kind of just saying, kind of doesn't matter. Here's the North Star. Here's where we're shooting for. Present, right yeah. now, right here. And you can start with your body. What does it feel like for my butt to be sitting in my chair? What does it feel like for my back to be against this cushion? What does it feel like to have the sound coming out of my throat? What are my eyes doing as I'm looking at you on the Zoom call? Mm -hmm. What kinds of sounds am I hearing? 
any kind of presence that we can bring to our experience is going to create more space around our feelings and our thoughts and our regulation. And that's going to help our children. So you had mentioned earlier being a Zen practitioner. How has that informed how you understand this and how you think about this? Well, like I just said, you know, it's actually been an incredible affirmation of my practice as a Zen practitioner. So what I just talked about, you know, that physical presence is part of what the science of attachment has revealed is at the heart of attachment, security, being present, being what Mary Ainsworth called an excellent informant, being able to notice what's going on around you. You know, the mothers that she spent time with in Uganda, when she looked back at what made some of these relationships secure or insecure, she found that it really wasn't so much what the mothers did, but how the mothers felt. So it didn't matter so much whether or not they breastfed, what mattered was their attitude toward breastfeeding. She got the impression that all of these mothers had a lot to say about their children. But when she looked back at her notes, she realized that some of them really were interested in talking about other things. And the mothers who knew the most, had the most detail, were able to pay the most attention to their children were the mothers who had the most securely attached babies. You know, right there, we just get so much information and it's so exciting because that's something we can all do. It doesn't matter how you grew up. We can all learn to orient toward curiosity, toward just slowing down and, and noticing, wow, what, what does my child mean when she says X or Y? Or when does that blush appear on her face? Or what kind of food does she really like? Or, you know, what are her favorite shows? And, and the other thing that Mary Ainsworth found that occurred in these securely attached pairs was what she called mutual delight. That was for her a technical term, delight which I just love, especially in the West, we're stricken with all these rules, with this behaviorist tradition that we say we're no longer following, but we really are. We think we're supposed to be parenting in a very particular way, giving certain kinds of food, certain kinds of experiences, certain kinds of screens, certain kinds of school, certain kinds of education, certain kinds of love even. And what this concept of delight does is it breaks all that down and encourages us to just delight in your kid, just delight in yourself. You know, like Azalea and I, she's 14. We watch Real Housewives of New York together. It's trashy. I love it. She loves it. We talk about relationships when we, because that's all those housewives do is they're just relating mm -hmm. to each other. So it's a great way to delight in relationships. Mm -hmm. The content doesn't matter that much. Just share something that you like with your kids. <laughs> you know, it's so beautiful and it's so simple. And Mary Ainsworth really saw the power of that. And what about kind of the cross-cultural part of it? Yeah, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about the fact that the first real empirical study that was done of attachment, setting aside Bowlby's Thieves, which was a very, very small, very scrappy study, was done in Uganda by Mary Ainsworth. This is where attachment comes from. When she left Uganda and came to Baltimore, she wanted to test what she was beginning to learn with the most different population on earth, which is what, exactly what she did. A suburban group from Baltimore, mostly middle class, mostly white, some Jewish families, mostly Catholic or WASPy, and she found the exact same 
behavior is happening. But, you know, the reason why she came up with the strange situation is because the babies in her Baltimore sample weren't behaving in the same way with the same amount of stress. And she thought that it might be because in Uganda, she was the first white person a lot of these babies had ever seen. So they were going to scram to their mothers because they were afraid of this white lady. And so she controlled for that by putting these kids in the strange situation. Let's give them a little more stress and see what happens. And lo and behold, they behaved just like the, the babies in Uganda. Hashtag genius. It is really amazing. And then especially that there's been tons of research that's happened since then that is further validated, that it crosses uh, socioeconomic, it crosses um, gender. Yeah. The strange situation has been done controlling for pretty much every aspect of human humanhood, temperament, IQ, socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, where people live, parenting styles. And the research shows that there is this universal experience of attachment. And, and also, you know, there are studies that have been done on different children who have several caregivers. I can't say everything has been looked at, certainly, but it feels pretty robust. It's really, really solid. And then that was backed up with the longitudinal stuff that like Shroof was doing and how on one hand stable, but on the other hand, not destiny, as you said. Well, this is where, you know, you asked me about the relationship to Buddhism and this work, and that's where it gets really, really juicy to me because I was just looking yesterday again at the development of the person, this incredible book by Alan Sroof and his amazing crew of people who did the Minnesota study. And the way that they talk about the development of the person is exactly the way the Buddha talks about karma. To lay people who haven't studied Buddhism, we often think of karma as this kind of destiny, you know, you get what you deserve. Almost a payback. Yeah, exactly. And I always say, well, you may or you may not get what you deserve. It depends on what you consider deserving. What Mary was looking at was sensitivity to a child. It wasn't enough to just read a book to a child, which we would normally consider to be a universally positive thing to do. But if you are reading a book to a hungry child or a agitated child, it's not going to be a very attuned experience. And regardless of how, quote, good that book is or how important it is to read to children, it's not going to be an attuned experience. And so it's all about, in, in Buddhism, we call it time, place, position, and degree. So we're really looking at how things occur. And so karma functions in terms of time, place, position, and degree. So what works well in one context and is going to yield a positive result may not yield a positive result in another context. And the development of the person, as Sroof and his team has revealed, is that the way that a person develops is utterly dependent on conditions. Now, attachment is one of those conditions, and it's an incredibly powerful condition but it continues to grow in strength as it propels itself through a human life. And as a person gets older, they become more and more responsible to themselves, more and more accountable. So that propensity grows, but so does our empowerment because we become more aware and we become more adult. So the propensity for the attachment pattern across the lifespan is quite strong. We do tend to maintain our pattern of attachment, 
but as with any karmic seed, it changes as conditions change. So a child in a stable childhood, and then the parents get divorced, there's a pandemic, there's all kinds of- Stressors, right. Stresses, that can change. The same thing can happen with a more positive condition. But that doesn't mean that that core experience of one's early attachment isn't functioning mightily, because it is. I love that. And that we're more likely to kind of make a jump or a change in that primary thing around a big life, like, for example, when an adolescent leaves home or the birth of a child, or the loss, a very, very significant loss, a marriage, a relationship, getting in a secure relationship. Or getting into therapy. Mary Ainsworth got herself into therapy after a terrible divorce, and that's when she found her own secure base and went to town on her own research. She was a little insecure. She was a little wobbly. She was anxious. And then she found that secure base. I don't know if she actually changed her attachment, but you know, mm-hmm. the point is that this is an alive process the more alive we can be within it, the better off we're going to be from an attachment point of view. So the context here is we're going to talk about your AAI, the adult attachment inventory. So Mary Main, with the support of many of her colleagues, created this instrument. So basically we have the infant attachment, Mary Ainsworth. And then what Mary Main did was she was incredibly able to create an instrument where we could sort of see inside the mind and get to the unconscious working model of the adult. So that was super exciting. But one of the things about it is that even when we know about it, we're notoriously bad, unreliable narrators, right? We're notoriously bad at guessing what our attachment status would be. So before you did it, what were you thinking about yourself? What were you imagining? Before I did the AI, I assumed with great certainty that I was insecure. It was obvious that I was a poster child for insecurity. I had a very lonely childhood. I was miserable. I was borderline abused. I was a very risk-taking adolescent, a delinquent, lots of issues around intimacy, you know, a lot of acting out, a lot of anguish, just, you know, like a mess, a total mess. I never did well in school. I was not a solid, healthy adolescent by any stretch. And then very fortunately, someone suggested that I go to Antioch College, which is where I ended up going. I wasn't going to apply to college or anything. And someone said, you know, you should really check out Antioch. And and I did. And they accepted me. Praise the Lord. And I ended up going to college and discovering that I could think and do somewhat reasonably well and got myself through a lot. But I always had a lot of difficulty in relationships and felt great anguish around relationships and then ended up in an addictive relationship, really deeply troubled experience. And that's how I discovered Buddhism in a Barnes and Noble, standing at the self-help section thinking I've hit bottom. And I found this book on a bookshelf called Nothing Special Living Zen. And I walked to it like a zombie, like that was destiny. And I read the book in the Barnes and Noble and I thought, oh my God, this is what I need. So When I started to learn about attachment, that was why I was so afraid of it because I thought, well, I'm insecure. I'm a total shit show. So obviously my daughter is going to be the same thing. It was a foregone conclusion. And I had a whole story about it. I mean, like my whole story, my whole life was about not just being insecure, but being a victim actually of my insecure making family. And I don't mean that to disparage myself. That was just 
Oh, you're just describing something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was what I came to because I have, was thinking about it a lot, which is my first clue looking back at how perhaps I wasn't as insecure as I might have thought because I was thinking an awful lot about my own state of mind. So, you know, when I was engaging in all this delinquent activity, I would be thinking, why am I doing this? Nobody I know acts like this. Kids I know are all going to college and they're not, you know, leaving school in the middle of the day to go do these things with their older boyfriend, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what is wrong with me? And so I created a story about it. So then I got interested in attachment and was afraid, but I thought, you know, I really, I want to know. I want to know what kind of mother I am. This was my journey. And so when Dr. Steele, Howard Steele agreed to do my AAI, I thought, okay, here we go. And he told me later that he only did it because he had a good feeling. You didn't know how that was going to turn out. So I did the AAI. It was an incredible experience, even though I, I had been learning a lot about it, but I did it. It was spontaneous, I'm sure. And I went away for a couple hours and I came back and he read me my transcript, the comments about the transcript. And I was solidly secure, very high reflective functioning, which of course, you know, it doesn't come as a big surprise on my years of Zen training, of therapy, of thinking about all of this. But the thing that really blew my mind because I had this one particular memory of being in the bathtub as a little girl and my father coming in and me saying, no, get mom. And I always thought, oh my God, maybe I was abused. Maybe there was something really to that. And that just built, you know, part of my story. And of course I told him that in the AAI and he responded to that story as saying, that was an empowering memory because I felt confident enough to say no. Oh, and wow. that changed everything. Mm -hmm. I was like, what? Me empowered? Saying no? Me strong enough to ask for what I wanted? And then, you know, everything kind of changed. Like in a movie, we call it the sea change in, in the middle of the movie where the main character like has to look at everything anew. And that's what happened in that moment of the AAI. And then I... The more I learned and the more I you know, read the comments about my transcript again and again, I realized that all that effort that I was putting in that I called me being insecure and delinquent was me valuing attachment. I did so much work to try to stay close to people and to be close to people and to be intimate with people. And it didn't come easily to me because of my background. But I was by hook or by crook going to be close. Well, that's such a beautiful, incredible story. And it's really an invitation for all of us to question our narratives. I got to speak with Lori Gottlieb. I don't think we've published it yet, but I noticed that she hadn't written something for your book. This idea of not trusting our story you know, and really being able to examine again, which is exactly what you were doing. And then not only that, so you ended up being secure. And what else? Well, first of all, I just wanted to say, question our story, but not question our experience. Two yes. really different things, because yeah. I would never want to suggest that we should not trust our feelings or our experience. And if we feel devastated, then feel devastated. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the story 
is exactly as we see it. I'm really, really glad that you said that. Yeah, that's definitely not the message to not trust yourself and your experience. And sometimes I say too, though, that like, if I can learn, let's say that I lean blue, I tend to be dismissing and avoidant, then as I'm looking at my control panel, I'm not responding, I can know which parts of me to question a little more, like, why am I not having more of an experience? But it's not questioning myself. It's actually knowing myself so deeply that I'm like, oh, on that one little thing, I would be likely to skip over it. Or on the other side, you know, I would be likely to panic or I would be likely to interpret that in a really scary, negative way. So that feeling I want to question, but not my some of my experience. And that questioning is still from compassion and love about like really taking myself seriously about what's happening. And to trust our sensations. Yeah. So Dr. Steele said, you know, yes, you're secure. And I ventured to ask him, well, what do you think Azalea would be? And he said, secure. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, you know, amazing. And then, so I went away from it and feeling really kind of bold and like, wow, and confident. But then being me, I thought, well, wait a minute, there's a loophole because there's this so-called earned security thing, which there are questions about that because from the research point of view, there are so few longitudinal studies where we could actually see someone in a strange situation and then change category. Exactly. So it's more kind of a therapeutic clinical appreciation of someone's experience So I thought, well, maybe I just have become secure because I have, you know, sat my butt on the cushion all these years. And I couldn't really imagine my mom being secure because she seemed very distant and not not a great informant. She always said she couldn't remember stuff about my childhood. And so then my husband and I did the AAI training and how to code the AAI. And then my mom came to visit and I thought, well, 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 I think you might have to do the AAI, mom. (laughs) So she was willing to do it, which was amazing of her. She did not want to, but she did it. And my husband did it, you know, with her. And I kind of overheard from the kitchen. And the minute I heard her talking, I thought, oh my God, she's an amazing informant. She's completely secure. She's got such coherence. She's super detailed. And that blew my mind. And then we you know, recorded it. We sent it into the steels to get it transcribed by a blind coder. And it came back solidly secure. And this is the best part, with a reflective functioning score higher than mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, touche. Wow. That is incredible. It was. See, I love being surprised. I love it when things are not what I think they are. Me too. It's like, yay, there's so much I'm not seeing. You know, there's there's a lot on the horizon for me Mm -hmm. to experience. Like the light bulb, the light bulb moment. Exactly. That's incredible. Okay, so then what would be your message for people listening? I want people to understand and hear that it's human to have mixed feelings. In fact, it's good to have mixed feelings. And that from an attachment point of view, having our feelings is the key. Not trying to be happy all the time, not being what Mary Ainsworth called long-suffering mothers (laughs) who are trying (laughs) to do the right thing. Yes, we want to be our best selves for our children, but our best selves are selves who completely metabolize. Yeah, they're messy. Our best self is messy. Well, it's messy and it's really dealing with the stress, not just knowing we're messy, but like Mm -hmm. getting in there and feeling all the feelings 
and learning to negotiate with ourselves and learning to navigate the darkness and the shadows. And if we keep the shadows shadowy, that is what we're going to transmit to our children. So if we have a lot of energy for parenting, like so many in the West do, I like to recommend that people put that energy toward unpacking their own feelings and thoughts and ideas around who they think they are, because that will actually really serve your child more than signing them up for the very best X, Y, or Z for their whole life. That is so powerful. And I completely agree. That is fantastic. So well said. Thank you. (laughs) Good. I'm glad. (laughs) What it basically does is instead of what we're doing and what we can do in flashcards and Mozart and these things, that it's our being. It's who we are. And this fits with what we know about neurobiology. I just had a conversation with the, the pioneer who was the first person to study oxytocin. And the upshot of the whole thing of like, oh, how do you turn on oxytocin? How do you get more oxytocin? If we just boil it down, it's actual safety. So I was thinking with couples, for example, you know, I'm wanting to calm him or her down. But in order to do that, you go in and it really has to do with presence. Everything you were talking about, your body, if I become actually safe, then I'm going to be able to regulate out which is just what you were saying, basically. Exactly. And you know, what's really important to remember is that I had this conversation the other day with Sharon Salzberg. I was on her podcast and she was talking about a conversation she had with Mark Epstein about being a good enough mother and how do you become a good enough mother? And Mark Epstein said, well, you become a good enough mother by tolerating your child's rage. And I said, the best way to tolerate your child's rage is to tolerate your own rage. And when we're upset because our kids are upset, it's because we can't tolerate our own distress. And then we try to shut it down in our kids for good reason. It's distressing. It makes us uncomfortable. So the answer isn't to make them more comfortable so that they never feel distress, although certainly, you know, if you can do that, go for it, but to create our own resilience and to learn to deal with our own discomfort and our own distress is what our kids need, because then we can actually do the right thing karmically, attachment-wise, help them feel felt. We can't give our children anything we don't have. We can't help them feel felt if we can't feel ourselves. All of the science, like whether it be philosophy, religion, when you were describing earlier, it's like really struggling with it, getting in there, not disengaging, but really actually engaging. And whether that be with your faith or in your relationship or with your parenting or with your child, like there's something too about this active engagement where you keep trying to figure it out and correct and make micro adjustments, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to honor the process and Mm -hmm. that we are beautiful, imperfect, crazy creatures. I mean, if I can be secure, (laughs) anybody can be secure. And the takeaway for me looking at this whole experience of myself has been to really honor that striving that I had as a little kid and as a growing person, that effort to be connected and to honor relationships and to, to really value attachment because that's the hallmark of a securely attached adult is that they value attachment. Yeah. And and not pathologizing that yearning. Exactly. And I I have to work with myself on that all the time still Mm -hmm. because I'm obsessed. (laughs) (laughs) 
And not everybody is. Well, fantastic. That really is incredible. And I want to maybe underline one point that you just made too around, like if you already are aware that you may lean in a particular direction of like that you may lean towards down-regulating or you may lean towards, again, like that, where you get frightened easily. So for example, like it's just what you were saying with the mother and baby, but I'm just going adult to adult. If I can't tolerate your passivity even, or your entitlement or things that <laughs> your fragility yes if that sends me over the edge then it's like okay now you know what to work on and then we go in and we reclaim our needy whiny selves <laughs> and we really grow into like all of these disowned parts and that's part of the journey the again the north star paddling towards security i think For me, it is. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, I've become a better mother, but dealing with adults is still real hard, (laughs) you know, because I didn't give birth to them and I'm very impatient with them and all the things. So I really thank you for reminding me of that. What is the saying? Like hell is other people, (laughs) you know, and it's hard. It's hard to regulate our own feelings of distress when we are disappointed or impatient, but it really always comes back to that. And the thing is, I am not a clinician. Although you play one at times, it seems like you've you've been able to worm your way in to these amazing situations. I have such respect for that and can totally relate to it. Yes, yes, yes. So no, I'm not a clinician and I don't have a PhD in anything. I have an MFA in poetry. I barely graduated from high school, but I managed to get myself to college and to get a master's degree. But I just became obsessed with Mary Ainsworth and wanted to learn everything there was to learn about her strange situation. And that's how I got myself into all these labs and archives just by kind of fibbing and saying that I was writing a book when really I was just beginning to want to write a book proposal. So yeah, people ask me that all the time. Like, how are you doing this? Or why are you doing this? I have spoken to many of the big folks in the field and gotten their stamp of approval for the work because I don't want to go rogue by any means. I have great respect for the scholars. I just am not one officially. I'm unaffiliated. That's right. Well, we definitely on this show see healers in many, many forms and you don't have to have letters behind your names, but you're obviously a healer, a natural healer. It's clear. You don't need the AI necessarily to feel it. It's like, oh yeah, of course, absolutely. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. So if you enjoyed this content and learning about yourself and having this little de-shame bath that we uh, did today, we want to invite you to share the show, to jump on and give us a rating and review that helps us get great guests like this and be found all around the world. We're heard in 172 countries, which is super cool. And if you're really into it, we do have an opportunity for you to join us on Patreon and become part of our community called the Neuro Nerds, where we do deeper dives into some of this material. And you can find that at patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored, or just go to our website, which is therapistuncensored.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It has been such a blessing. Can you please share how to find you? So the book is called Strange Situation, A Mother's Journey into the Science of Attachment. You can buy it wherever books are sold. It's on audiobook as well. I read it and it is on Kindle and, you know, all of that jazz. 
I have a website, www.bethanysaltman.com, no Z, just S-A-L-T-M-A-N. And you can see my book and my work as a creative coach there. I do mindfulness mentoring and coaching for writers and, and other kinds of folks. And I am on Instagram, Bethany underscore Saltman, and on Twitter, Bethany Saltman. I'm not on Facebook or anything like that, but I'm, I'm pretty new to all that, but I'm having fun. And I love hearing from readers, actually. It's really fun for me. And I also noticed, just while you have the opportunity, I noticed on your website that you provide services to folks. Would you want to say anything about that? Yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned, I, I do creative coaching and mm-hmm. mindfulness mentoring for people. Okay. Okay. who want to write books or have a big idea. I work with people on their websites. I've worked with people in business on messaging and things like that. It's a little bit broad, but basically anything where you need help figuring out what you think and how you want to say it. What were you born to say and how are you going to get it out there? That's what I help people manage. Oh, that's fantastic. It's fun. I love it. It's great work. Yeah, we're so fortunate to be able to do these things that we love. I know. I know. So fortunate. It was so fun to talk to you, Sue. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you, Tina Payne Bryson, for connecting us. Heck yeah. Thanks to Tina. Good matchmaker. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and hanging in with us. And stay in touch. We will see you right around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 